Matthew 13, we are in this morning. If you have a Bible, the Red Pew Bible, it's page 969, beginning of verse 24. We're actually going to skip some verses. I'm breaking some rules, but Jesus provides an interpretation of the parable this morning, so I'm just focusing on that single parable, and this is some pretty crazy stuff this morning. Beginning in verse 24, this is a word of the Lord. I'm going I'm to do something a little different. As I read this, can we stand? Because Jesus actually says something specific. He says, if you have ears this morning, hear. All right? Who has ears this morning? All right. Let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, did you sow good seed in your field? Where, did, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this. He replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Moving on to verse 36. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. You may be seated. So hearing that, might be sweating as you're seating, sitting down, right? Thinking, all right, this is a feel-good sermon. Nice and uplifting this morning. Well, last year, I took my son James to Dorney Park. You might have been to Dorney Park in here. It was our first time. Uh, his birthday is the middle of July. Perfect time to go to do the dual, you know, water rides and the roller coasters. It was great. He wants to do it again this year. He wants to go and check out Great Adventures, which I've been to many times. Uh, I'm a huge fan of roller coasters as well. But, you know, we have technology these days where you can kind of preview roller coasters because people sneak in GoPros and attach it to their heads or whatever and you know get the front cart on roller coasters and video the whole thing in 4k or whatnot put it on youtube and so you can kind of sit and actually 
you know, get a, a little preview of these rides. Anybody done that before? Before you go to like a, a park or anything, you kind of watch the rides. I see a hand up there. There you go. We do it, right? And so, you know, now to kind of early, I'm excited about it. I like roller coasters, right? I'm, I'm pumping the excitement buttons like, hey, James, watch this video. We're going to do this in, in the summer. It's great. Now imagine his birthday comes and I'm like, okay, so instead of going to the park, we're just going to go in the basement where the TV is and turn off the lights, get some popcorn, and just, just watch all the videos of the roller coasters instead of like actually doing it. It would be a lot cheaper, that's for sure. But imagine if we did that, what would his response be? It would be, we all know. It's not the same thing. It's a preview. It's just like a trailer of the actual ride. There's no replacement, right? It's not the same as actually experiencing the real thing just by watching it. This video is just a glimpse of what is to come. But today's sermon is going to be about the kingdom of God and also about the kingdom of the evil one in this world. We will be talking about our future eternal state, both heaven and hell, and how according to this parable is all the implications of it point towards you and I are given a little sneak peek and glimpses in our lives today of both of those future realities. Just like those previews of those roller coasters, right? We are given glimpses today of both heaven and hell. We're going to talk about that. And once again, Jesus provides a warning at the end for us. Once again, if anyone has ears this morning, let him hear as Jesus said. So let's beginning in verse 24. Let's walk through this. Jesus told them another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed the good seed in this field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads and the weeds also appeared, the owner's servant came and said, I thought you sowed good seed. Like what is all this weeds? Where do they come from, right? So once again, in this sermon series, we're exploring the kingdom of God in the Gospels, and this is about the kingdom of heaven. We have defined the kingdom so far as the place where God's might, his glory, and his power is pushing its way into this world that does not have his might, his glory, and his power. Wherever God's presence is found, Wherever a redeemed person is found, it is where evil is eradicated. Where spiritual conflict is found between God and his kingdom and of Satan in this world is where a glimpse of that inbreaking kingdom will be found. It is found where we see brokenness in this world restored. It is found where we see healing take place and salvation received among human beings when they meet Jesus and they experience the power of the work of his spirit in their lives. That is that trailer preview of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God in breaking into this world. And so as a farmer sowed the seed, um, the kingdom is the farmer who sowed the seed, said Jesus, like the kingdom, right? This should ring some bells. We just got finished with the parable of the sowers. Another instance of sowing some seeds, right? 
Well, in this case, uh, it was being sown in a field. It's a little different here, right? And this is good seed that was being sown. But when this man went to bed, he and his servants, as we will see, uh, the enemy came in while they were sleeping, and the same exact field put in his own seeds. Now, it says uh, weeds, right? Most translations will say weeds or tares, maybe, or something like that, but it's not it's any random weed. If you were to translate it, literally, it would be darnel. This Latin name is timulentum, I think it's pronounced close to something like that, which actually means to be drunk, because it's a poisonous weed that grows alongside and within wheat, and it almost looks exactly like wheat until harvest time comes, and it's fully grown, then you can finally distinguish between the fake wheat, as some people actually call it, and the real wheat. When humans eat this fake wheat, this darnel, it makes them feel nauseous, dizzy, Similar, you know, that's what they talk about, the label it, there's another French name for it that means to be drunk, right? It can even be fatal if, it's, if too much is ingested. Like I said, false wheat is the name that farmers call this because this is very normal for it to pop up in the midst of a um, field of wheat. Now in our, par- in our parable, it's not just randomly present as if it was, you know, the wild or something because as the seed began, began growing, the darnel began growing and there was so much of it, like there was so much of this poisonous weed out there that the servants were like, all right, this isn't just random, like there's so much of this stuff. Uh, somebody planted this. And like I, we watched you plant good seed, Did you, why would you want to plant bad seed? And he's like, I didn't do this, said, you know, the, 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 the man, the, the owner right here, the farmer. He says immediately in verse 28, an enemy did this. Suddenly, this seemingly innocent parable about wheat and weeds, there's now this conflict, right? It's a clash between this farmer, this man, and now an enemy. Actually, it says his enemy. It continues on. The servants asked him, so do you want us to go and pull it up? Verse 29, no, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may also root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until harvest, and at that time I will then tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in the bundles bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Although we're kind of skipping over those little two mini parables that lie in between the interpretation and the parable. There's the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. A major emphasis that we see here that we've talked about numerous times because it comes up quite often in the Gospels is that there are mysteries with the kingdom of God. Unexpected realities of the kingdom that are still today happening. Like unexpected things still happen today. There's a famous phrase uh, theologians have learned to use when describing this kingdom that Jesus, I mean, this is the primary thing Jesus spoke about was the kingdom of God. And the way Jesus spoke about it, they use this phrase called the already slash not yet. Because the kingdom is present today, but it's kind of like watching that roller coaster video. Like it's here, but it's not quite the real thing. You can, you're kind of experiencing what it would feel like to go down that first huge dip on the roller coaster, but you're not actually quite in that cart yet. It's a preview, so it's already, but it's not yet. And 
because of that imperfect nature combined with God being the infinite God that he is, the eternal God that he is, that he uh, is vastly bigger than you and I. You were, we were finite creatures. He is infinite. And so there should come with his uh, uh, eternality, if you want to call it that, unexpected things that we will never quite understand because he is God and we are not. All those factors come into play to say there's going to be some unexpected things here in this earth as you're walking with Jesus in his kingdom within this broken world. And last week we talked about the sovereignty of God, his absolute sovereignty over all things, but how the Bible, uh, the Bible constantly provides attentions of holding our human responses accountable, our free will accountable, and how both of those things are true. But here's one more attention this week. The farmer, which we see, will represent Jesus in this parable, he did not plant that bad seed. There is an enemy who planted the bad seed. There is a work in this world that can only be attributed to the enemy and not to God. I don't want to all uh, don't want to always go the route of like, well, God allowed it, kind of thing, right? Because there's some instances where the Bible is clear: no, the enemy did it. Like he is responsible. He sowed the seed, and it is his work. And what this parable is about is that we're going to see that it's not so much only really speaking about the church today. There's a, obviously it is to some degree, um, but it's really mostly speaking to the effect of the kingdom of God certainly present in the church today within this broken world, and how, and also about how the world, uh, also about the world present inside of this imperfect kingdom of God. I'm going to say it one more time because my little word play, I even got confused on it. We're in the world. The kingdom of God is here in the midst of this world, but sometimes the world finds its way into here, into our lives, into God's own people. There's a lot of stuff going on in this parable that is speaking into that reality. So we're going to really look at that this morning. Jesus provides yet a turn, an interpretation. He doesn't often do that. I'm always happy when he does. Thank you, Jesus, because he tells us what it means. So in verse 36, we look at what this parable means. His disciples came to him and said, so please explain to us what's going on. What is the parable that we all about? They say, we need help here. Guys, look, Jesus sometimes is a head scratcher, all right? Let him be that. Like sometimes, I mean, here he kind of, he gives us a lot of the meaning. He skips over some of it, which is frustrating. Um, but never find yourself in the place where Jesus still just can't uh, challenge you to say, I, I don't understand this. And sometimes maybe don't feel the need to do that. I talk about this often. I sometimes meet people and, and Christians who just, every, every question just has an answer. Everything's figured out. And I'm like, man, like, I think God's just bigger than you having an answer for every single little thing. Part of our worship is actually standing before a God whom we, we, we understand, certainly, that leads us to salvation, but so much of him is so glorious to say, wow, he's so big here. And this aids in our worship to be reminded 
of who he is and who we aren't. So let him be a head-scratcher. I mean, his disciples didn't often understand things that he said, and it's okay right, that that happens. But in verse 37, he goes into um, the interpretation. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus' nickname for himself. It just means the human. He stole it from Ezekiel. But it's, all the phrase really means is the human being. Right? The one who sowed the seed is the human, is Jesus, the Christ. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So he breaks this down. Let's let's get this straight. The guy sowing the seed is Jesus. The field that he's sowing is this world. All right, just in your mind, think of the earth, the blue, the, the land, the whole shebang there. That's, that's his field. The good seed are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of a different kingdom, the evil one. And who is the evil one? It's the devil. It's the Satan, the accuser, the one who sowed the seed. As the parable mentioned, the harvest that will ultimately separate the wheat from the tares, the wheat from the darnels, the wheat from this poisonous weeds, it's the harvest at the end of the age. The harvesters are angels. If you look in the book of Revelation, you see uh, visions of that day when the, when the angels really are the harvesters that come to, uh, uh, ex- to bring God's righteous judgment into this world. So he finishes the parable in verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom. Everything that causes sin and all who do evil, they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. It does end with future judgment, the future sifting of his children from those who aren't, and the future judgment that will separate them as well as their eternal future in the end. I want to talk about this a a little bit more because there's a lot going on here, okay? I want to look at how Jesus describes this future place of judgment for a minute, okay? Let's, let's, let's talk about this. There's really there's a, a bunch of ways it's described in scriptures. Jesus, by far, spoke about it more than anybody else. And there's really three kind of main ways he spoke about it. The first we see here is this, this future place of torment. Uh, we call it hell today. It has a different name sometimes in the Gospels as well. It's a place, number one, of hot torment. He describes it here as a fiery furnace. Any Bible nerds want to think of an Old Testament story that maybe Jesus is alluding to? Anybody? Yeah. Shadrach's right. Book of Daniel, right? He's alluding here to Daniel. There's a story, you can go read about it in Daniel, when um, there was a fiery furnace, okay, that was brought forth for judgment for actually God's people, and God rescued them out of there. But he uses the image of a fiery furnace. It is essentially a giant, think of a big box, just a huge oven that they actually were trying to put people into, okay? Most unpleasant. 
to say the least. The second, he calls it a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The imagery there is just like, ugh, like grating your way through something very painful, right? It's like having a migraine with no hope of relief forever. Or appendicitis, but no doctor to remove it, but never actually dying from the pain. It's like that kind of imagery, right? You're just constantly gritting your teeth through pain. But there's another way we don't often talk about how Jesus describes hell. Matthew 22, 13, he describes it as outer darkness. Outer, meaning where is outer? Well, it's not here. It's far away in darkness. The best way I can describe this is when I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts, and we were camping, this is in Georgia, we were camping at one of their campgrounds in Georgia in the absolute middle of nowhere. I mean, central, south Georgia, there's absolutely nothing there except this like Boy Scout camp, okay? And so, middle of the night, had to get up and try to go find the bathroom. I was probably 10 years old, I don't know, something like that. I did eventually find the bathroom, but this was a very primitive place. There was no lights, there was no electricity, right? It was that kind of place. And so, on the way back, I got lost. Middle of the night, no lights anywhere. I mean, that kind of pitch black where you put your hand in front of your face and you don't see your hand. Like, it was that kind of night. No moon was out. It was pitch black. And I wandered around, wandered around. My memory makes it feel like it was hours. Who knows? Maybe it was more like 10 minutes. But when you're that age, it feels like an eternity, right? And, and I was just walking around. I would hit a briar bush and fall and get my, all scraped up with briars. And it was pitch black, trying to find my tent. And my father was there. And my, I think my brother was there too. But I was just wandering around in the middle of the night alone. And I didn't know where anybody was. I remember like when I think about that, it's like one of those memories from childhood that like kind of freak you out, you know, that you carry with you the rest of your life. As a kid, you know, it it just really shook you up. But that's one of my memories, right? Because I felt so alone and so separated from any life whatsoever. I just felt like I was lost alone. The funny thing is, the whole time I was like just maybe 20 feet from the campsite, just kind of walking in circles around, and I discovered that later. (laughs) But C.S. Lewis described hell in his book, The Great Divorce, in similar ways. He kind of took this idea, and he said, you know, that the idea that some people in, in hell may be living alone and so isolated from any living creature or person, almost as if they were separated from life itself. Jesus talked about this place like that as well. And I heard one pastor pointed out that fire, there's light that comes from fire, outer darkness, there's no light and darkness, right? How do those two things combine? These are imagery, images that are intended to help us understand something that is not so simple to understand. Okay, hell is bigger than you and I realize. And then most often, uh, when Jesus referred to hell, he actually referred to it as a real place. I don't know if you guys knew this. A place called Gehenna. It was a trash dump outside of Jerusalem where dead bodies, garbage, the refuge of the city that that was tossed. There was a constant fire always burning there. I don't know if you knew that Wilmington has its own Gehenna. Did you guys know this? Um, Recently, I discovered it. I uh, was really late in getting rid of my leaves, so I drove up to the Cherry Island landfill, 
And they said, oh, the leaves? Yeah, yeah, you have to take, go forward, take a left up the hill where it says like commercial only. Some of my little, my, it's not very little, it's my wife's bus, we call it the family bus, it's pretty big. But um, driving on this road next to the semis and you, you realize like this is a really tiny car and these big old trucks could just like squash it with one of their wheels. So I'm driving next to these trucks going up this commercial gravel you know, road up to the top of the hill there. And when I get up to the very top, have you ever seen one of those like apocalyptic movies where like earth is just this desolate, muddy, barren wasteland? That's on top of the Cherry Hill landfill. I mean, there's literally nothing, not a blade of grass to be seen. There's buzzards over here circling. There's garbage heaps everywhere. There's, uh, There's no life to be found anywhere, and it stinks. And I remember pulling up there thinking like, this might be like what hell is like. Like imagine living there, like pitching a tent and living up there and being challenged to find food or water. Like it would be an absolute miserable existence. So yes, Jesus, Jerusalem had that place. Wilmington has that place. If you want to talk about hell using local terms, Cherry Island Landfill. But this is all kind of future speak, right? This is future judgment. This is a future place we're talking about. But the tension Jesus left us with is this. There are sons of that future place today, just as much as there are sons of the, the kingdom of God, that future place already today. In fact, right now they were growing up together among the sons and daughters of God's own kingdom now. And since they are false wheat, even sometimes it is very hard to distinguish between them, but God will do so at the end. I'm going to say something that may sound radical to your ears, but I'm telling you it's not, okay? Just be uber clear. I do believe hell is a real future place. That is clear in Scripture. Heaven is a real future place, present place, both of these things, right? That's clear in Scripture. But the kingdom is already here in this globe, it's here today in our world, as we receive glimpses of heaven on earth. We're actually instructed to pray for that on earth as it is in heaven. We're we're, we're called by God to go and seek out glimpses of the kingdom, the power of the Holy Spirit working through us to bring people glimpses of that kingdom. When people become followers of Jesus, they meet him, they receive salvation, restoration, and healing, but we know this is all imperfectly here. It's not in its fullness. And I truly think we should see and even think about hell in the same way. That when the enemy sows a seed into the world, and the effects and fruit of that seed blossom in this world, that we will see glimpses of hell on earth. The whole idea of the kingdom in breaking into this world is that Jesus is trying to, as one preacher said, get the hell out of this world. Do you understand what I mean by that? He's trying to pull that stuff out of this world. That is the ministry of the church. Like that's what we're called to do is to, when we see the cross and see the victory of Christ on Easter morning conquering death, we are commissioned when we go and make disciples, when we're going and ministering to people, and we see people meet him and receive wholeness and salvation, there's hell leaving that person when they meet 
Jesus. That is the ministry of the church, and he ultimately will bring heaven to earth at the end of the age. But as Jesus was ministering and working, there was constant clashes with sickness, with suffering, wickedness, demonic oppression, brokenness, people living lives of depravity that had wrought wreckage throughout their life, but he confronts it, he preaches the good news, and he brings healing to it. Now, something that is very clear in this parable, if you were to stick with this kind of language, right? That now on earth, seeds of the evil one and his kingdom, or what we, I think we can call, hell is often growing up and even among God's kingdom. It's one of the mysteries that we have here. People thought that when the kingdom showed up in Jesus' day, that that would not be the case. It was just like instant judgment. Like John the Baptist, like he's coming, he's going to baptize with fire and separate the wheat from the chaff, right? It's just going to happen. And everybody was really anticipating that to just happen immediately. But when Jesus shows up, we see, if you will, Cain and Abel kind of living together. And judgment not immediately happening. But one person knows Christ and has the experience of salvation while around them, they are surrounded with what is in this world, with the kingdom in this world. There are several implications that, with that kind of reality that I want to, uh, as we close here in a few minutes, kind of walk through. In this parable, Jesus was very clear when he says, should we pull up the, the, the tares then? Should we pull up the, this poisonous wheat? As if they would have the eye to tell, essentially, if you look at the interpretation, who was in and who was out. Should we take that upon ourselves, Jesus? And he said, no, 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 no. That's for me. I'll send my angels. Time of harvest. They'll take care of that. That's not your job. One way to apply this to ourselves today is as Christians, for those of us who are Christians in this room, to make comments like, oh, that person's definitely not a Christian. Like, no way. Such a mentality is really taking on the role that belongs to God final judgment, who knows once and for all these things, don't think that you have the ability, don't, don't consider that you have the ability to fully and completely discern those things yourself. We're commanded to actually look to ourselves first and be willing to own our own sins before we own others. Rather, by allowing the weeds to grow together, there's actually a message of grace found here. We can rightly assume that God is allowing the weeds to grow together in order to provide grace, to make grace available to those who need it. Peter said it in this way. He said in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, he said, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, because people are coming saying, hey, you've been saying that this Jesus is coming back. Where is he at? This is decades after he ascended back to heaven. It's like, where is this guy at, Peter? What's going on here? So Peter says, he says, one day with the Lord is as, uh, one with the Lord. Sorry, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you. He doesn't want anybody to perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But he's slow to bring that about. He's letting the weeds grow up with the wheat to say there's still an opportunity 
for all people to find redemption. There's still grace available even now. He's slow to come and do the final separation because it's our job to go and to have compassion on all people so that they may meet Jesus and find salvation. Both grow together, right? Because he wants those, those sons and daughters of the other kingdom in this world to be transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins out of Colossians. Now, however, a sin persists in your life and your heart is hardened because of it. Sometimes it leads, uh, sometimes it is permissible to at least question like, do you really, do you really get it? Uh, there's tension with this conversation. The whole being a disciple of Jesus thing, like, do you really get it if sin is in your life and you just kind of learn to like not care about it anymore? Yet we know that sin will always remain in our lives. But if you zoomed out on our Christian life, I think we can say this. If you were to, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, like you ever played around Google Earth and like, you ever played Google Earth on the computer and just like try to find little places? Yeah. Well, imagine like, you know, you right now we're on the street, but if you were to somehow just like zoom out, if you're on Google Earth and kind of go back, back and see all of your life and then convert to like a line chart or something, you should at least see something like this. It may like drop down a little higher, let me down, but if you zoom out, you should see some kind of upper trajectory, even if it's a very bumpy upper trajectory, which would be most definitely mine, you will still see some kind of, you know, it's like looking back five years ago and saying like, man, like, I really am not that person I was five years ago by the grace of God. Like, I think we should be able to say something like that. Maybe it's sooner, maybe it's like a year ago, or maybe it's six months ago, or maybe it's 10 years, whatever it is, you still should be able to see if you are in Christ some kind of growth or at minimum conviction of just sin in your life, right? Um, there's, a, there's a church in the New Testament times, Corinth, that that wasn't exactly the case. And Paul kind of actually gently but firmly addressed this at the very end of the book, 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 5 through 6. He actually said to the church at the very end of the book, he said, examine yourself to see if you're actually in the faith, right? Test yourselves. So there's tension in that conversation, right? But if we are driven to ask such questions, and those are really hard questions, it must always be followed up as he did just a few verses later. And says, your restoration is what we pray for. Because there's still opportunity for you to turn and to find growth in Christ. Does this make sense? I hope you're tracking with me. Number two, we must identify righteous and spirit-led and spirit-filled living as cultivating God's kingdom on earth while recognizing unrighteous living as cultivating hell on earth. This might be a shift in how you think about this. But if hell is a place of torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness, it's a place of chaos and disorder. Deeds of unrighteous living belong to the devil. But when they are found among us, you and I, we are bringing into this world glimpses of that future place called hell. Jesus' ministry and his ministry through the church is trying to remove this hellish darkness. Call sin what it is when you indulge in it. I promise you what happens is around in your life, chaos happens. It's like you give birth to chaos and it affects, I tell my children this all the time, to myself this all the time, right? My own sin 
it's not just mine. Because all the people in my life are immediately affected by my sin. Right? It's not just mine. When I hit the ground and choose to, to pursue my own interests above that of Christ's, it affects all, especially in my position, pastoring this church. Right? It's a high responsibility, but for all of us, for your families, for those around you, your sin will affect them. And you are actually cultivating a glimpse of hell in front of them around you if you were to fall into that. Broken marriages, broken families, uh, living with yourself in mind before others, living in religious judgment over others is a big one. Jealousy, gossip, envy, lust, anger, right? You know, Jesus came not just to say, like, don't murder somebody, okay? The whole idea of the kingdom is he wants to get so deep into your heart, he says, don't even feel anger towards somebody. Like, that's where I want the transformation to take place. Yeah, sure, like, avoid certain actions, but where is your heart here? Like, I want the anger to be out of you. Like, I want to pull that out. When my spirit fails you, that is something that belongs to hell and needs to get out of you and be filled with love and grace and compassion towards those who may actually be sinning against you, who you may feel justified for being angry at. But no, 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 I'll take care of that. I want you to go and to love them and offer them salvation through me and point them to the cross. That's what I want you to do. That's the kind of change I'm seeking to happen in your heart. He is seeking a transformation of the very core of us, our motivations, the very foundations of who we are. And he's saying, guys, I'm, he's giving us this parable to say you have to be discerning here. You have to be careful in how you live, right? There's a lot of mysterious, crazy things happening all around us. You have to be discerning about your own life. And how you are living, the enemy is constantly sowing seeds in this world, even trying to sow them within us. And the question that we're kind of confronted here is, is your, what, what, what does your life mirror? Like which seed is ultimately kind of what is surfacing here from this? And finally, we see that Jesus will one day return and bring final judgment to this world. That's happening. We know it's happening. But the, but the thing that we can end with is on the most gracious note possible. It is this. There is still grace available today. It is not too late for Christ to bring restoration and wholeness to your life. It is not too late to begin cultivating heaven on earth today in your life. If you've left brokenness throughout your family, it's not too late to reverse that today. It's not too late. If you walked in here, I was just praying before, and if you walked in here, you feel like you, you just like, your life is like in eight different pieces, and you're just like bringing all eight pieces somehow strung together. You just kind of plop down in the pew, or you're just here this morning. I'm here to tell you that it's not too late for Christ to, to just ram himself into your heart and begin stitching everything back together and say, I can, I'm here to heal you. I'm here to restore you. It's not too late for that to happen. And so as we close this morning, we'll call the worship team to come back up as we close. Um, we close every week with a time of ministry up here. Um, yes, come and receive prayer, but even more so, like come and, and be healed this morning. 
Like, if there's anything you're hearing, like, I, I need to be delivered of things this morning. I've got to be just healed myself. I, I feel like there's seeds of this other kingdom just have taken so much root in my heart. Well, come forward this morning. Let us pray for you because I firmly believe that even now God can do something in your heart and in your life and deliver you even this morning. So can I pray for us before we are led in this last song? Um, Jesus, we know that you are alive and you are well. And Lord, we see this parable, and there's just so many other questions I didn't even begin to scratch the surface with that come from this very difficult parable. But Lord, the delay that we know that you, let her, you are letting these, these different weeds grow together, but the end is not now. You have not returned yet, so there's still a door opportunity to, to be restored. And Jesus, I pray in this room right now for anybody who needs restoration who needs to come to you and just offer themselves all over again to say, Lord, take all of me. Lord, please heal me. Lord, restore me. Help me to have a change of mind and heart and to turn from these destructive things in my life to find you. And Lord, I know that you can meet them, Lord, this morning. I know that you can restore them this morning. So for anybody in this room who needs to come forward, Lord, please stir it in their heart to come, Lord, and receive you this morning. We are so thankful, Jesus, that you are a gracious and compassionate God and that you have not left us, you have not abandoned us. But wherever we are on the trajectory in our Christian lives, you are still here to pick us up once again, to put us back together and fill us and set us on a new course, Lord a new course in you, a new course of life, the life of love and the life of grace and the life of mercy. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your, for your death, for our sin, and for the resurrection that conquered the grave. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. stand and sing with us. I need you to soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to open my eyes to see that you're shaping my life. Trust what you say That you're good And your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my life I need you To soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to pierce through the dark and cleanse every part of me. All I 
trust what you say that you're good and your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my life Yeah. 